the most compelling data points for me are if you go to a community college, you're more likely to have a professor who cares about you as a person, and you're more likely to have a mentor who encourages your goals and dreams. This is In the Know with ACCT, the voice of community college leaders. I'm Jacob Bray. In this episode of In the Know, David Connor and I spoke with John Clark. John is a consultant at Gallup and has done extensive research on the public perception of post-secondary education and how community colleges can distinguish themselves positively from other sectors of higher education. His presentation at our most recent National Legislative Summit was well-received, so we thought it would be a good idea to catch John for an episode and discuss his work a little more. We're here today at the 2020 uh, Community College National Legislative Summit with John Clark from Gallup. Welcome, John. Thank you, guys. It's an honor to be here. Uh, we, we, we're really glad to talk to you now. Uh, to be perfectly candid, we hadn't planned out a podcast, but John's uh, presentation just went over so well and was so full of interesting information that we really wanted to grab him before he got away uh, back to Chicago to talk about uh, some of the highlights uh, that he presented. Um, just for everybody's reference, the slides from his presentation are available on the ACCT app. Uh, we strongly encourage you to take a look at those, but also get in touch with us if you have any further questions. So, uh, John, you were asked to present about um, higher education Gallup's uh, Gallup surveying of higher ed uh, perceptions, I guess, and um, where community colleges and associate degree granting institutions fall within that. Yes, yes. We have, through our research uh, over the last about half decade, we've issued this annual survey to college graduates. And we've asked hundreds of questions to try to determine what core college experiences relate to positive long-term outcomes. And the specific outcomes we're looking at are, are graduates finding meaningful work and are they living good lives? And uh, through that research, we've identified six core college experiences that relate to those long-term outcomes. And in preparation for the conversation today, I was going back through our research, and a few years ago, we surveyed 2,500 associate degree holders and, and found some really interesting data that, that shows uh, in some respects, community colleges are surpassing their peers across higher education in providing a relationship-rich college experience. And I think that's a, a dramatic finding and something that uh, community colleges should be very proud of. Uh, I, community colleges are proud of that when they realize it. I don't, I don't know that everybody involved with them does. There's still a, something of a stigma that's pervasive among people that um, sort of grades higher education institutions based on these classifications. Um, I went to a community college right out of high school, and then I transferred to a four-year university. And one of the points that you talked about was actually very significant to me. Uh, which was the small class size and the individual instructor attention. Um, that, so that was one of those highlights that I, I tweeted out because I just thought that, you know, that's really, um, that's an important thing that I think a lot of times people don't think about. So that and other ones, what stands out to you in your mind as some of the uh, potentially surprising findings? Hmm. Yeah, the most compelling data points for me are if you go to a community college, you're more likely to have a professor who cares about you as a person, 
and you're more likely to have a mentor who encourages your goals and dreams. I think when I think of the faculty ethos at community colleges, uh, my mind turns to a recent profile I read of Dr. Jill Biden, who I think she may have, she may teach at your alma mater. Uh, she does. She teaches at Nova. She taught at Delaware Tech for a long time, and she's spoken at this meeting, so you're in good company. Oh, that's, <laughs> I, well, that, that's the highlight of my professional life. But I read that before she went on the campaign trail with her husband, she would give the dean lots of advance notice and ask permission. And to me, the idea that Jill Biden is so sensitive to the needs of her students that she is planning in advance before hitting the campaign trail speaks to the general sense of responsibility towards students that community college faculty have. Um, and so that's a, a recent example that's sort of a qualitative uh, note on just how much faculty cares on campus. Um, well, so this might be a little bit of a tangent from your, your research. You can tell me that. Uh, in, in a meeting that we had just a couple of days ago, one of our committees, our member communication and education committee, which consists of community college trustees exclusively, was challenged to define student success, <laughs> finally. Um, and so basically what we came down to was agreement that there are just simply two disparate measures um, or two, two different ways of looking at it that really can't be resolved into one. One of them is those externally imposed uh, measures or indicators of success, which include, you know, credentialing, uh, transfers, all of the different types of completion and employment that follows. And then the other, though, was actually determined by this committee to be, in a value sense, um, the more important determiner of student success, which is very simply, uh, did the student who attended the college attain that person's initial goal. Some people just want to take a class and they're unfortunately not well represented in the externally imposed indicators. Uh, but then people have so many different reasons for going to colleges and there isn't any way of empirically measuring that necessarily for every single individual student. Hmm. So I guess, um, what am I asking you? I may be asking you, uh, what do you, as somebody who gathers data and analyzes and assesses data, uh, how, how do you account for those sort of very personalized, qualitative um, components of student success that, that are not in the iPad system? Mm, yes, I, I work with a, a, a partner at a, at a college who calls measuring student outcomes the, the holy grail uh, of, of student success in the sense that it's impossible to find, right? And someone pulled me aside right after our conversation today, it was a, it was a trustee, and he said, I've got federal and state legislative bodies telling me I have to check X boxes, mm -hmm. but you're telling me these experiences lead to Y results. Right. Why am I, why do I care about those results? And um, I think there will always be tension between what IPEDS measures and other, what might be deemed softer measures of student success. Uh, but I don't think they're mutually exclusive. So, uh, for example, you know, you look at the website of a lot of it, both two-year and four-year institutions, they'll broadcast the job placement rate. And that usually includes students who 
have matriculated to a four-year institution, have found a job, are serving in the military. There's all kinds of footnotes to that. And I think that boosting that number uh, doesn't do any harm, right? There's, there, is, there is great value in trying to improve the metrics that the federal government measures. But at the same time, you can also take first-year students to your note about what do students want. You could do initial surveys and ask individual students, what is your goal? And if they have a mentor who guides them through those two years, they can, they can land in the right spot. So an example of a measure that uh, one of our partners took, they were, they were uh, asking alumni three questions. Uh, did, did you have a job after graduation? How much money did you make? And is the job related to your coursework? And they found that the answers were pretty satisfying and they could tweak their courses accordingly. But then they realized that if they asked their graduates what about that job brought meaning to their lives, they compounded the impact of that survey. And then they added a survey to the front end of the college experience. So they asked, what kind of a job do you want? What do you want to make? What else is valuable? So I think that surveying or asking individual students on the front end, what's your goal? And having a mentor to get them to that goal can allow uh, community colleges to honor their promises to legislators and also serve their students. Right. Yeah, so I, the, the only um, complication beyond that, because that I, I agree with all of that, um, is that the iPad system, which for listeners who may not be aware of it, it's a federal uh, repository of information that sort of determines the, uh, the success of students as they're coming out of various institutions. Um, <clears throat> that, those data are used in part to determine federal funding and uh, probably factored into a lot of state decisions about how much to fund various uh, higher education institutions and sectors. So we know that in, all, in most states, I believe, uh, funding still has not been restored to pre-recession levels, pre-2009 uh, among community colleges, but generally four-year universities have benefited more. They've seen a higher increase, if not full restoration. So um, again, given that all of all of the points that you're talking about about the the real success by way of uh, greater attention, greater mentorship, um, more meaningful employment, how then can that? I, I mean, this isn't really your job, but I'm just asking. <laughs> how then can that be relayed to legislators or to the people making decisions about how to fund uh, colleges? so that they'll factor that in beyond just those hard empirical um, success data based on outcomes. Yeah, I, I, would, I would note too that not only is funding contingent on a college's performance against those metrics set at a high level, the job security of presidents and their cabinet right. is measured on. So there is a tremendous amount of pressure to, uh, to meet those metrics. And I don't have a perfect solution, but what I would say, something encouraging I saw in the program for the event this week, you listed uh, a number of members of Congress who graduated from a community college. And I was really struck, not only by the number of Congress folks, that's the, that's, I'm from Oklahoma, that's what we call them. <laughs> yeah, who, who went to a community college, but it crossed the entire ideological spectrum. Mm -hmm. 
And I think that there's something powerful there. The fact that uh, everyone from a libertarian uh, congressperson to uh, the most progressive went through the community college system. So I don't think the problem is intractable. I think the fact that many legislators went to community college themselves speaks to me of the promise of, of uh, in the long term, developing outcomes that are better, me better measures of, of student success. But I wholeheartedly agree that it's a real challenge. Yeah. It is definitely a challenge. Yeah, I mean, what I think is interesting, just looking through your slides, is that uh, this data point about how closely related associate degree holders and bachelor degree holders' eventual profession is to what they studied. And they're very closely related, in fact, for associate's degree holders, they're a little more likely to have a job that is directly related to what they studied than a bachelor's degree holder, which is, you know, it, it's kind of hard to nail down exactly what that means with just that single data point. But it is interesting that, you know, even though the, even though there's, they may come in with, um, or uh, the outsiders may have the perception that community college is more of a stepping stone, they're, they're really going directly into careers that are related to what they're doing mm -hmm. faster mm -hmm. than at uh, four-year institutions. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of that comes down to student expectations. It depends on whether you see college as a stepping stone or a launching pad. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think a lot of community college students go to use it as a launching pad to a specific career. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is a great advantage of the community college experience. I also think about my own experience. I went to a four-year university and I majored in philosophy because those were the most articulate professors. And honestly, I kind of floundered for a little bit after college. I never really honed in on my thing. Um, and so looking back, uh, when I talk to uh, you know, college applicants, I try to get across the message that the earlier you narrow in on what excites you, it doesn't have to be a specific profession, but it could be a body of skills, the better. So I'm curious, um, looking at that too, so you compare associate degree holders with bachelor's degree holders. Um, obviously these are cohorts that can be compared pretty readily. Um, so again, going to my experience, having gone to a community college, I, <laughs> I was one credit, I think, maybe one course short of attaining the associate degree because my intention was to transfer. Um, and I didn't find out until I came to work for ACCT that that would count against the institution. I would be considered a dropout in that sense. Whereas in my mind, I thought I was successful uh, because I went on beyond that. And I, um, so that's, that's one consideration. I wonder if you look at students who haven't actually attained the degree but may still have been, um, on, in their own terms, successful. Um, that's one thing. And then the other thing is that I, I didn't know, I was a biology major initially, I thought, and then I became an English major, and then I went on to get an MFA in creative writing. And um, we've had a lot of conversation here at ACCT about that, about the applicability of um, direct sort of workforce training or studying a practical technical field and then getting into that work but then potentially 
the breaks going on because of technological changes and you don't have a quote-unquote well-rounded or liberal arts whatever education that can support you beyond that so um, do you have thoughts about that and is there to, would that ever factor into the research that you do? Yeah, I do. So uh, on, the, on the first prong, folks who took some school but never completed a degree, we know there are more than 30 million adults in the United States under the age of 65 who took some college but didn't obtain their degree. And we've talked to those people about uh, kind of looking back how they viewed their experience. And most of them report that they had to leave college for financial reasons. Right. They just had to stay in the workforce. Right. And I think that, I, I hope that in the future, what we'll find is that the two-year degree and the four-year degree will increasingly be viewed as a vestige of a past era. And we'll focus more on programs that are designed to build specific skill sets. So if you want to be in the solar panel industry and we determine that we can give you a certificate that uh, uh, fully, uh, fully prepares you to work in the solar industry in seven months, why not have a certificate, degree or not, that prepares you for that field? Mm -hmm. And I see a lot of innovation in community colleges with these types of programs. Yeah. In fact, often more so than four-year institutions because community colleges have to adapt right. faster. Um, so I think that the world of two and four-year degrees, I've got a daughter who's 10 months old, and I imagine by the time she's of college age, we'll be looking at a vastly different landscape, mm -hmm. which will render issues like, oh, I was one credit shy, moot. Right. <laughs> I, I remember um, talking to a college in Kentucky, and they were working on... Uh, attracting more people who are already in the workforce and within uh, definitely within a calendar year it might have been within an academic year they completely changed their schedule and teaching format to have multiple lab sections for lab classes each week so students who had differing work schedules could go to the same class at the same time and they found that that was you know it an exceptional boon for those students who are already in the workforce. And that's something, you know, to your point, that community colleges can do well. They can quickly change to quickly, you know, uh, accommodate different types of students. And they, they have to. Yes, exactly. They have to adapt. We also know that um, classes don't always have to meet in person all the time. So yeah. I, I teach a class at a, a college in suburban Chicago, and I used to, it's a, it's a night class once a week, and I, I used to say, we're meeting in person 16 nights a semester just because that's how we've done things. But I found it's much easier to do a model where we now meet eight classes in person and meet online through a mix of live and asynchronous time. And limited time in person still allows for um, serendipity and improvisation, those important experiences you get in person. Uh, but a lot of learning can be done in different ways. And community colleges, again, are at the vanguard of exploring different ways to simply schedule to work with working adults. Yeah, that was how this program functioned. They had the lecture section online that students could take at a time convenient to them. And then, you know, for example, I think one of the programs was welding. They would watch the videos that the instructors had, instructors had made of how to weld, and then they would get to the lab already prepared with the knowledge they could immediately start. So this is at the cutting edge of effective instruction. I've read so many things, and some of our work has shown you can use this homework time or online time to view other folks doing it, and then the practicum in person is so effective. Yeah. In fact, 
I want to sign up for this course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. <laughs> I'm very clumsy though, so I worry about the outcome. <laughs> Um, so ACCT represents very specifically community college trustees, the boards. Uh, you presented a lot of, I think, really encouraging information. Um, your findings have found a lot of strong and unique positives among this sector. Uh, so I wonder, with that in mind, and with community college trustees specifically in mind. Some of the highlights that uh, might be most useful to them in their advocacy, uh, what, what would you emphasize in that direction? And then it just, if anything comes to mind uh, in a slightly more critical sense, like did any of your findings show anything that you would then be, you would encourage trustees to think about insofar as improving uh, what is being done in the community college sector or just just thinking in a visionary way toward the future that maybe something that isn't being done ideally right now, for example, like online learning uh, that's being out, you know, they've been, they're being out-competed by other sectors. Mm -hmm. Well, you, you've highlighted one of the core challenges of innovation in that funding is contingent on meeting certain benchmarks that are non-negotiable for now. And so community colleges are operating within pretty strict parameters. But what's interesting is the experience of four-year universities now is increasingly approaching the challenges faced by two-year institutions. That is uh, declining uh, tuition revenue. Uh, so while four-year institutions are doing better on public funding, many, particularly small liberal arts colleges, are shedding students at, a, at an increasing rate. Um, also, having pathways to meaningful work uh, is, is an issue there. So there has, there has been sort of a leveling of the higher ed playing field in that everyone is finding that they're encountering the same challenges. And community colleges have the advantage of being laboratories of innovation because they have to. If you're not delivering an experience that certifies skilled welders, you have to adapt on the fly and find new models. So I would encourage trustees to embrace innovation even though it's a roll of the dice, right? And you can't tinker with people's futures, but you have to move fast. And I think trustees, particularly those with experience in industry, um, I would encourage them to continue to embrace risk and to embrace uh, well-planned innovation because four-year institutions are looking at community colleges for answers too, which is interesting. Good. Um, so there, there was an interesting little exchange. It was fun and funny this morning with somebody um, who asked you a question in Spanish. And I think that's an indicator of, of how this nation is changing, and it's changing um, actually looking at it nationally and working with colleges in ways that uh, are sometimes surprising to a lot of people within you know, a given region that you would think is not as diverse. Suddenly, these areas are becoming much more diverse. Um, and so with that in mind, I guess I'm also wondering if you have any com comparative data uh, with community colleges and four-year universities insofar as how they're welcoming, admitting, embracing, and serving more diverse populations. And of course, diversity in and of itself is, there are different elements of diversity, right? So, but um, maybe, 
you know, not native English speakers, but also um, ethnic minorities. Um, how, you know, how how's the service of these different groups compare or their perceptions of higher ed? Yes, I don't have perfect data comparing associate degree holders to bachelor degree holders, but I know writ large, there are challenges with respect to age and race that universities have yet to solve. So in our research, we know that students of color are less likely to report that they had a professor who cared and they had a mentorship who helped them achieve their goals and dreams. We know that first-generation students, yourself included, but I don't know if you had this experience, are also less likely to have those outcomes. So that is an area of opportunity for higher ed writ large. But what's interesting is when we ask college graduates about career services, students of color are more likely to report that they used career services, and they're also more likely to report that they found career services very helpful. So in the last decade, universities have built a lot of programs designed to support minoritized students, and we see evidence that that's working, but it requires conscious effort. Um, I guess, unless Jacob has any other questions, I'm wondering, what, what's the next step of your research? Yeah. Where are you going next? <laughs> That's a great question. We'll sit around Gallup, and we will uh, write on a, we love the whiteboards, and we've got a whiteboard full of 80 things. But what we find in practice is that designing quality research requires a lot of time and thought. So uh, there's a couple of things that are at the top of my mind recently. Uh, one is drilling down and identify what students mean when they talk about a good job. And we just found in our 2020 survey that only 22% of college graduates were thinking about pay when they thought about a good job. So this year, I want to think a lot about how do we talk to universities about providing pathways to jobs that allow for growth, skill development, and mission and purpose. One of my favorite findings from that was uh, only 2% of students found the company's brand is very important. And if you think about a college career fair, the number of employers that broadcast the ping pong tables, mm -hmm. kombucha on tap, not that there's anything wrong with kombucha, right. I think it's gross. Uh, but, but those kind of things are a red herring. Students don't care. So that's one thing is drilling down further on, on what a good job actually is. Uh, and, it's, and a second thing, and this is core to our conversation, this tension between what iPad measures and what uh, folks like Gallup measure about positive long-term outcomes, mm -hmm. trying to find a bridge between those two worlds. Because we have so much evidence that these core experiences relate to positive long-term outcomes. We want to continue to spread that message in a meaningful way. Mm -hmm. Our current board chair, uh, Don Erlinson from Minnesota, actually asked you a question um, kind of tying to that. It's a little tangential, but it's, it's actually her drive for ACCT throughout this coming year, which is to focus on the newest generation, Generation Z, and their particularly their learning differences, attention differences, um, and, and preferences. And she wants us to start thinking, she wants the sector to start thinking about what she calls precision education or uh, personalized education, helping people learn in ways that, um, that you know, will works for them individually. 
Um, so are you also doing research into learning differences or perceptive differences among different generations? Because everybody just, I don't have kids. <laughs> everybody just keeps telling me that Generation Z is just distinctly different from all of the rest of us in the way that they operate. Yes, which is common, right? The generation above shakes their fist at the one coming up. Right. Um, I am, I fall between the Gen Z and the uh, millennial generations. And I've read some research suggesting that folks that kind of fall on the divide are able to relate a little bit better to the one above and below them. I haven't found that to be my case. None of my pop cultural references ever land. Um, and, and I teach Gen Z students, and I, I, I will tell you, I don't find a significant difference between Gen Z and millennials in their favorite modes of study. So for example, I have a rule in class that you shut your laptop. No one can take notes on a laptop unless they have a compelling reason. And they don't mind. And for an hour and a half, we talk and they listen and they're not on their phones, they're not on their laptops. So um, there's a lot of, um, uh, there's a lot of conversation in higher ed about second screens and polling during class. I have seen precious uh, little evidence that this actually uh, performs a core learning function. So when we think about generational differences, I would, uh, uh, I would challenge colleges to think of this idea of personalized learning that is impactful across all generations. And we see that with quote unquote non-traditional students down to Gen Z. Students want professors who care, they want mentors who understand where they're trying to go, and they want learning that is tied to their actual jobs. And the bells and whistles associated with it are fun to discuss, but I don't see much evidence that they're tied to actual outcomes. So this idea of precision education is exactly right, but I don't think it requires different gadgets or modes of learning necessarily. Mm -hmm. Okay, well all three of those things seem like things that community colleges specialize in, so just by default. Yes, yes. In fact, I was, I was just in Iowa last week, and I, um, I, I poked gentle fun at the caucus app that caused all the kerfuffle. But to me, it was a formative lesson in the pursuit of the shiny new gadget takes you away from core outcomes. Yeah. And they forgot that their mission was to deliver the results in a reliable fashion, not 30 minutes faster. I'm with you on that. Um, to play devil's advocate just a Please. little bit, I'll say, uh, I think it was probably five or six years ago, we introduced our uh, conference apps and tried to get people on the bandwagon of, of using that, you know, because we invested in it. Uh, and here we are a few years later. So here's the thing to me is that um, given time for refinement and for helping people adapt to using the new technology. Um, it's now turned out to be most people's primary means of navigating the conference, and they were demanding your, uh, your slides. <laughs> they wanted your presentation on the app during your thing. So, um, so you know, over time, I think uh, changes do occur and happen, but um, I'm encouraged to hear your experience with this, the, with Gen Z. Yes. Kids, I'll say, which I probably shouldn't say that um, that they're able to, you know, take in information. Yep. And, as, and as long as the focus is on specific, measurable outcomes, apps are great. A lot of universities now use data points from apps to uh, reflect when students aren't spending a lot of time on quizzes or not showing up in class, and that can raise flags. Mm -hmm. And that's and that's a great use of technology. But again, even in that case, it leads to a human-to-human -human interaction, kind of a caring interaction. 
And I would say I think people use the app here because they fell asleep during the speech. Mm -hmm. so they, they that a didn't happen during yours. Thank you. Thank you so much. We appreciate your time for this impromptu conversation. And um, yeah, anybody, if you're interested in learning more, definitely look up uh, John Clark at Gallup. And um, it, do you have anything else to say? No, I would just say I, I, um, uh, I really admire the work that you do. You all punch above your weight with respect to size and impact. And I would also note that I'm excited to stick around for uh, a while today because the great joy I have is that I get to go to conferences like this and learn from you. So I, I appreciate the opportunity to, to learn today as well. For more information, check the link in this episode's description. It'll send you to Gallup's higher education page. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.